This is Philosophy Bites with me, Nigel Warburton. And me, David Edmonds. Philosophy Bites is unfunded. Please help us keep it going by subscribing or donating at www.philosophybites.com or you can become a patron at Patreon. When I studied philosophy, I don't remember there being a single African philosopher on the syllabus. Katrine Flickshu from the London School of Economics thinks the curriculum needs updating. She believes that there are developments in African philosophy which are intrinsically interesting and which cast new light on old philosophical problems. Catherine Flickshu, welcome to Philosophy Bites. Well, thanks for having me. The topic we're going to focus on is philosophy in Africa. Now, Africa is a big place. You'd expect there to be quite a lot of philosophy going on there. So is there something distinctive about African philosophy? Well, I mean, I think that's a good question and one that's actually debated hotly in African philosophy itself. And different African philosophers take quite a different perspective on it, with some of them saying that there's nothing distinctive other than that it is philosophy that happens to come out of this particular geographical location, and others taking the extreme opposite view, saying that African thinking is in itself very, very different from any other form of human thinking, i.e. it is African thinking. And presumably the post-colonial pan-African movement has been an important influence on this. That's been the case in more senses than one, I think. I think one very important aspect of this is that, of course, a lot of the first-generation post-independent African leaders, such as Nkrumah, Nyeri, Leopold Senghor, were also all philosophers in some sense or other, either trained philosophers or thought of themselves in this way. That means that philosophy in Africa has always in post-independent time had a certain public function. And I think that even professional academic African philosophers are acutely aware of the public function that their thinking has. And has, even though they work in a context in which the population is is often still largely illiterate. That's not really the point. The idea is that philosophy in Africa has a political point and purpose, and that has a lot to do with the struggle for post-independence and the pan-Africanism that came with it. Which is not to say, of course, then, that every African thinker is a pan-Africanist, but that thought, I think, is very much in the background of African thinking. So presumably there's another aspect of African philosophy. There are a lot of countries in Africa, and you'd expect there to be a lot of distinctively different African philosophies. Yes, and I think, again, you can see the colonial influences, because I think that if you look at a a thinker such as Kwame Jeche or Kwasi Wiredu, both from Ghana, as it happens, so come really out of the Anglophone philosophical tradition, both trained in Western countries, and you compare this with someone like Paulin Hondonchi, who is a Beninois philosopher and comes out of the Francophone tradition. So there are some very interesting methodological differences, and then it's interesting to see how, despite their Western training, then their particular African context equally matters. It'd be easy to imagine that what's going on mostly in Africa is that there are Africans discussing philosophy that, as it were, was imported from other countries. So European philosophy or American philosophy or Australian philosophy happens to be discussed in an African context. I think that this is both the case and not the case. 
I spend quite a lot of time at the University of Ghana in the philosophy department there. One of my colleagues there says that whilst the curriculum is often very much dictated by the Western curriculum, the real interest that students and philosophers alike have has more to do with particular problems and philosophical questions that emerge out of the African context. So you do get this rather strange bifurcation sometimes of a curriculum that is still really an inheritance from colonial times. And there is a sort of sense that you can't do philosophy unless you know the Western tradition. But nonetheless, this is all in the end meant to lead to the ability to engage with problems that really are preoccupying African social contexts. And I sense you think that this is a really interesting phenomenon, that there are actually interesting philosophers in Africa, that there are specific ways of doing philosophy there, which we should know more about. Yes, I think that's right. And I think that this is, in a sense, the conclusion that I've come to, rather than my starting point, because I think my own starting point for engaging more with African thinking had more to do with a sense that our own thinking is really rather more parochial than we like to think. And this comes out especially in the topic that I work a lot on, global justice, where there is often a claim to universal validity of certain principles or ideas or conceptions of personhood, where that claim to universal validity is really just simply taken for granted and not really interrogated. And so I came into African philosophy in part because of a certain unease with that and a feeling that we should really engage more with perspectives that are not our own. But I think that one of the unanticipated benefits of doing this was really that it led me to rethink a lot of our own thinking in the light of engaging with African philosophical thinking. So it wasn't so much that, oh, I want to hear what you say, but then I still think in the same way that I did before, but now I've listened to you a little bit. It was much more that uh, sort of feeling, oh, I see, so one could look at the world in this way as well. Could you give a specific example of that? Well, one of the African writers whom I really admire is Kwasi Biredu, and I think it's very difficult not to admire him because he is such a clear, such an elegant writer. He's, of course, also a very, from our perspective, a very traditional writer, i.e. he was trained in Oxford under Strawson, so he's a very sort of classic, analytic thinker. But he writes a lot on philosophy of language, but he uses the tools of analytic philosophy in order to analyse concepts from his native language, Akan, and in order then to question certain Western-received theories. He's written an article in which he says that the theory of truth that's more or less taken as a given in much Western thinking, the correspondence theory of truth, would be virtually incoherent when applied to the Akan conceptual scheme because in the Akan language you can't really distinguish between matters of fact and truth the correspondence theory can't really be articulated. You can't really articulate the thought that that is true which corresponds to the fact because the words, as it were, are not really available for that. So that would be one example where you suddenly think, ah, the world can look very, very different depending on what, you know, language scheme you work with. But you could recognise that different people have different ways of looking at the world without giving them much heed. I mean, we know that there are lots of different religious beliefs, not all of which could possibly be true, and some of which are completely batty. But we don't have to explore the crazier outreaches of religion. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I think that sometimes when one explores what prima facie strike one as the crazy outreaches of a particular religion or worldview, the less crazy they begin to look. 
So I'm working at the moment on different conceptions of personhood, and I'm very interested in the conception of personhood offered by Ifyani Menkiti, who is a, a Nigerian philosopher. And he has a theory according to which many African traditions recognize what they call ancestors as persons who are biologically dead, so physically not existence, but spatio-temporally still existence. So they are, in a certain sense, non-physical but spatio-temporal beings who are still with us and who ought to still be treated as persons. Now, I think prima facie, one might think this is a crazy view. This is obviously based on a pre-scientific conception of nature, and this is utterly crazy. So I'm contrasting that or comparing that really with our own commitment or our own difficulty in dissociating ourselves philosophically entirely from our commitment to this idea of an immortal soul. The Cartesian self lingers, I think. Once one really looks into this and delves a little bit deeper, at least I think one will find that the Menkiti view is not that crazy if you adjust your conceptual frame in certain other ways. By the same token, it might also begin to look to you that the immortality of the soul is completely crazy. It's much crazier than you initially thought. So that's, I think, what I find most interesting, how looking at others' views impacts on how you then reevaluate your own view. So that's one way of looking at African philosophy, so that it's a way of giving you a different perspective on your own views. But there is another way, of course, where you could say that, well, actually, what's being said is very plausible and true, possibly, and that it's a respectable philosophical theory. And presumably in the area of political philosophy, there must be African philosophers making significant contributions on the topic of democracy, say, as it emerges in Africa and different countries. Interestingly, that debate is in a state, I think, of great flux, and in many respects, to my mind, remains quite underdeveloped. A lot of African thinkers who work on political philosophy face, of course, certain constraints that are quite different from the constraints that Western political thinkers face. Because I think that Western political thinkers are able to take for granted a certain history of more or less organic state formation. I mean, not organic, but, you know, open-ended state formation. It just so happened that we ended up with states. And we have a 500-year-long history of political thinkers that take us down that route. And so then we can, with that history and with that tradition of political thought, tinker in our frame. From the African political perspective, the problem is quite different because I think that the problem there is that there are these states and they can no longer be wished away, but they certainly didn't develop in a very organic or natural or open-ended manner historically. Then the problem becomes very often of trying to both differentiate the African political context from the Western context in order, as it were, to avoid what Africans often think of as a sort of neo-imperialism, where simply our concepts are taken over. But on the other hand, it's difficult to work up pre-colonial or traditional political concepts that were more adequate to a non-state political form. So in Africa at the moment, there's a lot of discussion, for example, about democratic theory. And this is in part because African thinkers want to avoid what they consider to be the trap of possible neo-colonialism or neo-imperialism, whereby African states are simply constrained to taking on the whole liberal democratic value package. So African philosophers want to then call out a distinctly African conception of democracy. The problem they have is that the 
pre-colonial, more traditional concepts of political organization and rights does not, of course, fit very easily into the state forms that they have inherited from the colonial context. There is a tendency very often to contrast the liberal conception with what is perceived as the traditional consensus-based conception of democracy, so not so antagonistic, not so individualistic, not multi-party-based, but more consensus-oriented, to contrast those two without really thinking sufficiently hard about quite how that traditional conception would fit into the structure of an inherited post-colonial constitutional state. Now, I know one area you're particularly interested in is the area of human rights. Mm -hmm. How does that go down in in African philosophy? Is that seen as something that's been imported from the West? The human rights issue is another very big can of worms. (laughs) It's become hugely popular in Western thinking. It's actually described as a new lingua franca. And my own view towards it is a good deal more sceptical than that of most of my Western colleagues. I think in the African context, too, it's a very, very contested issue. The views range from those who think that this is actually an anti-communalistic doctrine and therefore inconsistent with traditional African society, which is much more communalistic. I think there's much agreement amongst African thinkers that African society is communalistic in orientation. So one view on human rights would say this is antithetical to everything we've always believed. At the other extreme, I think you have people who who say, I'm thinking of Ajume Wingo, who has written a paper saying that Well, Africans thought of human rights long before Europeans thought of them. I think the dominant view is probably what Jetche describes as a moderate communitarianism, i.e. a conception towards human rights that is not antithetical towards them, but that would want to say that individuals have duties towards their communities just as much as the communities owe rights to them. So I think that for most African thinkers there is unease about what they often perceive as the excessive moral individualism of human rights. That's really interesting. So there's a sense in which human rights are perceived as protecting the individual rather than contributing to a wider communal state. Yes, and I think that that goes very much against the much more prevalent view, I think, in Africa of the person owing their identity to their community. You become a person through taking on obligations and entitlements, playing a role in your community, and that's what makes you a moral person. And I think the anxiety about human rights is that they often seem to pitch the individual against the community. And that can, of course, turn out to be then socially very, very disruptive. I think the only African philosopher that I knowingly studied as an undergraduate was St. Augustine. (laughs) It's quite rare to study African philosophy. If you were going to rewrite the curriculum to these university philosophy courses, which philosophers would you think should be on there? How would you approach it? That's a very good, very big, challenging question. It is true that we engage very, very little with African thinking. In the American context, things are slightly different because, of course, of the large number of African-Americans. And so there, African-American philosophy has emerged. That, interestingly, is often very, very much focused on questions of race. And one of the interesting differences between African-American philosophy and African philosophy is that African philosophy is far less preoccupied with questions of race. They are much more preoccupied with retrieving lost concepts and lost metaphysical frameworks. So why do we ignore it, I think, is perhaps the first question one would have to consider. 
And my sense is, as Chinua Achebe, who is an African writer who was not awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature, but should have been awarded that prize. But Chinua Achebe once wrote an essay called An Image of Africa, in which he criticized the European perspective of Africa as a backwater, as hopelessly underdeveloped, as having nothing to offer in which he said that that image is still very, very strong amongst Europeans. And I think that that's true. And I think that that contributes to our sort of oversight of this tradition. Now, I personally, I have great admiration for Kwasi Wiridu. I would definitely put him on any curriculum. I would also put Kwame Jechi on it, who is also a Ghanaian thinker. Um, I would definitely put Paulin Hondonji on it who comes out of a Marxist perspective, well, Marxist with Husserl, very interesting, and engages very much in this question of is African philosophy just a geographical denomination or is it something different? Gosh, there are certainly very many that one could plug into different curricula in order to afford us a new perspective on old philosophical problems. Catherine Fletcher, thank you very much. Thank you very much for giving me this opportunity. For more Philosophy Bites, go to www.philosophybites.com. You can also find details there of Philosophy Bites books and how to support us.